Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower clear. Welcome to Space 3D. Over our next few episodes, co-hosts Emily Carney and Eleanor Rangers had the opportunity to interview space historian and policy analyst Dwayne Day. Day is a senior program officer for the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board of the National Research Council National Academy of Sciences, where he has served as a study director on studies concerning NASA's aeronautics flight research capabilities the Planetary Exploration Program, the size of the astronaut corps, the threat of asteroids striking Earth, NASA workforce skills, radiation hazards to astronauts on long-duration space flights, U.S. Air Force astrodynamic standards, and other projects. He previously served as a program officer on the Space Studies Board and served as an investigator for the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. He has also written extensively on the history of American satellite reconnaissance. In part one of our interview, we'll discuss how Dwayne became interested in satellite reconnaissance, the process of intelligence declassification in the United States, and the value that firsthand accounts of individuals who previously worked in declassified programs brings to his historical research in this area. We'll conclude with his thoughts as a historian on how the Apple TV show for all mankind has carefully crafted their alternative history tale. Dwayne Day is the world's uh, foremost expert in Bigfoot and the Bermuda Tri- No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. kidding. Oh my God. He's probably going to hang up now. Dwayne Day is an American space historian. Many of us know him from reading his articles in the Space Review and in other venues. He uh, served as an investigator on the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, and he is also on the uh, senior program officer for the Aeronautics and Space Engineering Board of the National Research Council and National Academy of Sciences. He has also been on the Space Studies Board, but what we know him a lot for is he's written extensively on the history of American reconnaissance. He's also written about other topics as well. Recently, he's written about the show that we all love for all mankind. So let's just get started then. A lot of your work that you're you're known for, obviously, as I previously mentioned, uh, focuses on American reconnaissance programs and satellites. So really, what, what started your fascination with this and what started you uh, researching this, you know, all those years ago? Back in 1986, there was a book published uh, by a New York Times reporter, a guy by the name of William Burroughs, and the book was titled uh, Deep Black, and it was a, uh, a very readable account about both reconnaissance satellites and reconnaissance aircraft, like the SR-71 Blackbird. And I read that at the time, or soon after it came out, And I just thought it was really interesting stuff. It was really neat stuff. And I had known about, I had known a little bit about uh, satellite reconnaissance um, because I, as a kid, I read the newspaper a lot. I read, uh, I'm a real news junkie and I was the kind, you know, I was the kind of kid who, 
in high school was walking around with copies of Time magazine and Newsweek and and just reading up on world affairs all the time. And so I was aware that these things existed, but that was the first book that I read that that kind of really uh, tried to put them all together and explain what they did and how they worked and all that. And that was at a time when they were still very classified. So uh, the term black refers to something that's covert. So, you know, the title there, Deep Black, this this was really, these were some of the top secrets that the United States kept. These satellites that that operated um, in various orbits to to take photographs behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War and to collect signals from radars and communication systems and all of that. And so I, I thought Burroughs wrote a great book. It was based on things that sources told him that they were not supposed to talk about, as well as bits and pieces that he had gathered together from from various places to to try and assemble a coherent story about that. So it was a really fascinating book. Uh, not everything in it was right because the classification made that really difficult to uh, to penetrate. But that kind of fueled my early interest in in this. And then later on, in uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, the in 1992, the National Reconnaissance Office, which manages satellite uh, reconnaissance satellites programs. Uh, that was declassified. Their existence was declassified. And then in 1995, the government declassified the first of the reconnaissance satellites, which was a, a system called Corona. And they released a lot of information about that. Uh, I was involved in a very tertiary way in, in the declassification events uh, that that happened at that time. But I just found that all really fascinating and and I've been hooked for, you know, decades now. Well, I have a question. You know, we when we hear about something as quote unquote declassified, I'm actually curious as to what is involved in that declassification process. It is very bureaucratic. Uh, in the case of so, let's take a satellite system. Let's let's take something that is managed and operated by the National Reconnaissance Office. If they want to declassify something, if they decide that it is uh, no longer uh, a threat to national security to release this information, the NRO itself does not have the authority to do that on their own. So uh, somebody has to propose it. They have to write up a uh, some kind of memo that says we should, we think we can declassify this. And it won't harm national security. And then that has to go through multiple, multiple levels of approval uh, in order to, to ultimately be declassified. And so all kinds of agencies have to uh, voice in on that, including the CIA, other government agencies, maybe the State Department, maybe the National Security Agency, if they're, if it's a signals program. And that is actually one of the reasons why so little of this stuff gets declassified because it really requires 20 people to say yes, and only one person can say no, and it does not happen. Mm -hmm. And 
throughout the history of these programs, of the declassification of these programs, you can find examples where uh, something was proposed to be declassified and then it took a decade until it ultimately happened. I know that <clears throat> since Corona has been declassified, there, there are some others that have as well. Um, I'm thinking Hexagon and there's another one. I'm blanking on the name. Gambit. Um, Gambit. Yeah, Gambit. Are those the only three that have been declassified so far? Oh, no, no. There's a... Uh, a lot more than that. Though those are the big ones. Um, those are the most interesting and I think most consequential ones that have been declassified. But there have been a lot of programs uh, that have been declassified over the years. And in fact, one of the things you can find if you look it up, uh, and you can probably find this just by looking on Google, is the uh, National Reconnaissance Office's official declassification guide, which is a several hundred page document that lists everything that they have declassified. And that's actually a, a document that's created for their own people so that particularly when it comes to releasing documents, they know which ones they can and they cannot. They, you know, if they, they have a document and it has a code name on it, uh, say it has a code name like Quill, uh, which was a radar satellite. Well, if they want to release that document, they can look in the declassification guide and see what, you know, look under the entry for Quill. And then it says you can release X, Y, and Z about Quill. And so they can release that information. Uh, those three big programs, Corona, uh, Hexagon, and Gambit, the declassification for those really stems from a uh, executive order that was signed by the president by Bill Clinton in 1995. And, and so that was actually a very significant event in terms of, you know, the bureaucracy. You, you have to have a whole bunch of people sign off and, and say that something is declassified. Well, in that case, it had to go all the way up to the president's desk. So that went up to the, to Clinton's desk after going through multiple reviews and multiple discussions. And then he signed that executive order. And what that said at the time was that they could declassify Corona, uh, which happened in 1995. And then it said they would look at declassifying the follow-on film programs uh, because all these satellites used film to record their images. And so the follow-on programs were Gambit and Hexagon. And so even though that executive order was signed in 1995, those two programs were not ultimately declassified until September 2011. So it just took, you know, it took 16 years until until they got all those other people. Like I said, you, you have to have 20 people say yes and one person can say no. Well, in the case of Gambit and Hexagon, they just they sat on the approvals for you know over 15 years. So this is kind of a very basic question. Since some of the things that you write about are still in different levels of classification, I guess, how do you do research for these articles, you know, given that some things are probably still at various levels of <laughs> visibility? So in, in the case of um, a lot of the stuff that I write about, uh, I use declassified documents and there are tens of thousands of documents that have been really released over really since the mid nineties. 
And you can find those if you go to the NRO's website, which is nro.gov, and you look in their history section or you look in their Freedom of Information Act section, you can find a, a lot of these documents. And they're they're amazing. There are, there are uh, official histories of a lot of these programs. Those have been declassified. And then there's memos and reports and all kinds of stuff. Uh, a few photographs. Uh, and so in my case, a big problem is just kind of sifting through tons and tons of material and trying to find the the angle that I want to take on this. Uh, but then there's also, uh, I try to find people who worked on this stuff because as much as I love documents and documents create a very, uh, a contemporary uh, record of what happened. In other words, something that was written in 1964 is going to be the same you know, 30 years later, it's not going to change, unlike somebody's memory. And so I, I like, I really like building up from a lot of documentary sources, but they don't often tell you the why of things happening. You know, why did they make this decision and not another decision? And so I like to find people who actually worked on these programs. It's really hard because a lot of the stuff that has been declassified is about very is about programs that ended many decades ago, and a lot of the people who worked on them uh, have have passed away. And it's also hard to find them because you know they're retired. You don't know where they've moved to, and and so it's it's kind of a you know it's a constant process. You have to or. You know, what I try to do is I, if I find somebody and I talk to them, I ask them, well, who else, who are your buddies who worked on this? And can you put me in touch with them? And and so you kind of build it up from there. Uh, but uh, Emily and I had talked about this last year uh, with with certain people. You know, we read about somebody and we think, oh, it would be really cool to talk to that person. Well, call them up and talk to them, you know, just send them an email and find out if they're willing to talk about something. And there's there's no reason to hesitate uh, on this, especially when you're talking about people who are, who are in their 80s or maybe their 90s. Uh, if you don't talk to them today, they might, may not be around tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Um, yeah, just, absolutely. Dwayne, I've actually had the opportunity to speak to a gentleman that was Air Force career Air Force and worked on a number of these uh, programs um, and say exactly what you say. The guy was, you know, he's like in his mid eighties, but he was still very with the program and feel very fortunate that I had a chance to, to talk with him. And you're absolutely right. They can tell, you can get nuances and insights and anecdotes that you just can't get from the written, the written word. Um, so it, it definitely, there's definitely value to that firsthand account. Yeah. There was a, and sometimes you can actually tell them stuff that they did not know. One of the interesting things with dealing with people who worked in the, the classified realm is that they did not know what was going on in the next room. They did not, uh, they only knew about their program, but they did not have security clearances uh, for other programs. And a number of years ago, uh, I was interviewing a guy who had designed a uh, a reconnaissance camera in the early 1960s. And 
he was telling me how uh, the requirements that were given to him didn't make a heck of a lot of sense. That uh, and this this camera system was called the Samos E5, and the requirements that came to him were that the camera had to fit within a certain volume, and it had to the volume was going to be pressurized. And they were going to recover the whole camera system, not just the film. And that they were going to bring that back to Earth. And those requirements really harmed the camera uh, performance, that this thing didn't work as well as it, as it should have. And I interviewed him in his, in his home up in, in, uh, outside of Boston. And he was telling me, he says, I, I couldn't understand this. This was the, an Air Force requirement. And I just thought it was stupid. And I pulled out some documents that I had found that indicated that what the Air Force really wanted to do was, you know, in the early 1960s, the Air Force, well, actually, I think it was earlier, I think in the late 1950s, the Air Force was banned from having its own manned space program competing with NASA. So NASA had Mercury and the Air Force wanted their own program, but that was not allowed. And so what the Air Force did, which was very sneaky, was they came up with a pressurized capsule and then they decided to put a camera in it. And they would, the plan was to fly this capsule with the camera as a reconnaissance satellite, prove that it worked. And then what I presume what they wanted to do was eventually they'd uh, take the camera out and they'd fit it with a life support system and put a military astronaut in there and they'd have their own um, uh, military spacecraft uh, with, with a air force officer flying it. And, you know, as soon as I showed him and the, the information on this was very sketchy, but as soon as I showed this to him, he was shocked. He was, he said, that makes total sense now. And this was, you know, I was telling him this 40 years after he had designed this system. So, wow. uh, because of the world that they worked in, uh, there were things that they uh, they never knew at the time, and they still might not know today. So that was that was kind of a neat little neat little thing to to see this uh, the light bulb light up over the guy's head uh, as we we pieced together something from many decades earlier. Yeah, there's. I mean, I don't work. Obviously, I don't do work in the same uh, topic area. But it is exciting when you talk to somebody and you kind of do like the, <laughs> you sort of do the math and you're like, okay, this adds up now. Like this situation adds up. Yeah, that is really really cool. So you've written about things that are not about reconnaissance. Recently, you've written a, a bit about uh, for all mankind, which is uh, one of our favorite TV shows on this podcast. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and what you like about the show? <laughs> yeah, we could also talk Star Trek if you want. Because I'm okay, big... oh, yeah, we could do that too. Sure, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I'm a big, uh, I'm a fan of classic Star Trek, not so much the the new stuff. But uh, yeah, I actually am. Uh, I really like the the series. Uh, yeah, I actually really liked it uh, in the, the first season uh, when it started because, you know, in the study of history, there is this whole kind of side part of, of history called counterfactual history or alternative history. And among academic historians, it has a rather bad rep. And the reason is they think it's kind of, you know, it's just 
it's writing fiction, really. But there have been a number of books done uh, really over the last 20 years or so that have taken different historical events and changed one key aspect of that event and then explored how the history would have played out. And that's what For All Mankind does. You know, the, the basic premise, uh, the starting point, I believe, is that Korolev does not die in the mid-1960s. He's the Soviet chief designer, uh, but he lives. And then he makes the Soviet lunar program into a successful program, and they beat the Americans to the moon. Uh, I thought that was an interesting idea, not so much from the, you know, the fictional entertainment aspects of it, but I thought that they did a really good job of kind of plotting out the, the responses and, you know, how the Americans respond and then how the Soviets would respond to the American response and, and so on. And I thought that they came out with some very logical conclusions to that. I watched those first episodes uh, from the first season, and I was really uh, pleasantly surprised that they didn't just go nuts on it. You know, it didn't just depart reality entirely. And they still kept things constrained so that as the history played out, Certain things changed, but certain other things stayed the same. The, the American culture overall did not change as quickly as some of the po uh, the policy decisions and some of the politics. So uh, I thought they did a great job of that. I really liked some of the ideas that they explored. There were times when I thought they went a little too far with, the, say, with the physics, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and you're seeing that a little more with the second season as well. But I ultimately, I really liked it. And there is a positive aspect in the show that I really admire. And I, I hope they explore more. Uh, but the, I, the positive aspect is the ability of space to inspire people and to make people want to do things, to build things to explore, uh, to actually improve the human condition. And I, I really admire that a lot, uh, to, to see that in the show. Because that, as I mentioned, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And that was one of the things I, I enjoyed so much about the, uh, the first several series of, of Star Trek was there was this, there was this core idea, and I, I don't want to call it utopianism, but it, certainly was this idea that we can we can be better than we are and space is a way to make that happen we hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Dwayne day we'll continue our discussion in our next podcast for space 3d this is eleanor rangers and thanks for listening <laughs>